This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. For good or ill, change has been a constant of human history. And how does change happen? Lots of people want to make change, but oftentimes fail to achieve it, while others have made history. In this podcast, each episode will be a deep examination of the people and institutions who are driving change in this country and around the world. I'll be looking in the areas of politics, technology, media, and business. Change has been a constant in my own life as well. I grew up in five different states and have had a bunch of different jobs. I've created web publications, wrote and analyzed public opinion polls, produced television shows, and run web servers since the 1990s. My guest in the first episode is Matt Grossman. He's a political scientist who's written a number of fascinating books. His most recent one, Red State Blues, is about the limits of change. According to Grossman's research, while Republicans have managed to take control of a number of state governments, they don't have much to show for it. In our conversation, we talk about why GOP control hasn't led to more change in the states and what the implications are for national politics today and in the future. Over time, there's been a, a large rise in Republican representation, elected, uh, people being elected as Republicans in the states. So talk a little bit about how that happened before we get into what the effects may or may not have been. Yeah, so it's, it's a real electoral revolution um, compared to our uh, kind of pendulum of national politics going back and forth. In the states, Republicans moved from only controlling three states in the early 1990s to controlling 26 last year. Uh, so that is a real kind of uh, opportunity for, for Republicans to, to move policy uh, compared to what, what we usually uh, see. Um, but there's kind of two two parts of it. One is kind of a more normal thermostatic backlash to Democratic presidents. The big gains came in 1994, 2010, and to some extent 2014, those midterm elections under uh, Democratic presidents. Um, And so those you might expect, and and we've seen a little bit in 2018, could swing back um, under under Republican presidents. But there's also a more long-term shift. predominantly in the South, but, but not, uh, not exclusively, um, that I think it'll be a lot harder for, for Democrats to, to win back. So um, we know about the Southern states uh, moving to the Republicans, but in the national level, we think about that happening in you know the 70s or, or 80s at most, um, but it really didn't happen until the 90s um, in, in state politics, and so it's a, it's a big part of that change. And then you get states like Missouri, Tennessee, even Ohio that are not considered uh, Southern um, completely, um, but that, that have moved Oklahoma, that have moved out of uh, competition uh, for the Democrats, and then even states like the Dakotas um, that are not Southern, um, but but do have um, sort of cultural uh, predispositions um, that have sort of moved out of competition for, for the Democrats. So uh, one part of the story is kind of a normal back and forth that was much bigger <laughs> uh, under Barack Obama. And one part of the story is more of a long-term change that it will be um, harder for Democrats to win back. Republicans have made a lot of gains in different states the past 25 years or so. And uh, But those have been electoral. What have been the policy implications overall? 
Well, the, they have been able to pass a lot of uh, social issue uh, policies. Um, guns and abortion law have changed in every state. Um, they have uh, been able to target uh, political opponents when it fits their ideological perspective as well. So they've anti-union policies um, have advanced in the state. Um, policies that uh, are bad for trial lawyers have, have advanced in several states um, where you kind of have that alliance between, you know, the a policy view that they, they support and a, a political imperative to um, help your, uh, hurt your opponents and, and help those that are on your, your side. Um, where they have been a lot less successful is in transforming state government in terms of its size or its scope. Um, you know, since the Republican revolution in the 90s, uh, state the size of, of state budgets has doubled, uh, even accounting for inflation. Um, you have continued uh, focus of the the budget in education and, and healthcare. Um, there's not a whole lot of evidence that either the the size or the, the scope of government has responded uh, to Republican gains in the states. Um, the same kinds of trends are evident when it comes to, to regulation um, and kind of agencies and the structure of agencies and, and what they do. Um, on these sort of basic economic policy dimensions, you don't see a whole lot of influence. Uh, would you make an exception for taxes to some degree? Uh, there isn't a whole lot of um, influence of, of taxes there, on taxes. There is some. Um, they have tended to redistribute taxes slightly um, away from um, away from property and income and towards sales, um, but that hasn't been overwhelming. Um, there have been several high-profile cases of reducing taxes, particularly at the beginning of new Republican gubernatorial administrations like in Kansas, um, but some of those have later uh, moved back upward, uh, either directly in the, in the case of Kansas or kind of indirectly over time in the case of some of these states that had the teacher protests um, where, you know, it wasn't wasn't seen as a direct refutation of the previous policy, but nonetheless, um, tax revenues, you know, moved, moved back up after uh, an initial fall. Another thing about taxes is that it um, has tended to respond uh, to economics uh, in, in the states um, a, a little bit more than some other uh, areas. So you know, where, where possible, um, you know, governors have, have cut taxes, but, um, you know, in lots of states where uh, they, they wanted to, um, it, it didn't fit with the state budget. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the lessons is that compared to the federal level uh, where uh, Republicans can just cut taxes and have that be a separate policy area. Uh, in the states, although a few do find ways to, to spend more than they take in, um, there's still a pretty hard limit on the ability to uh, run large uh, deficits. Uh, and so that means that a cut in taxes is also a cut in, in social service spending um, that's a lot less popular. In, in the course of the book, you and your research assistants interviewed a lot of different uh, journalists and people who had covered politics in, in various states. And one of the things that I noticed uh, that several of them had said was that a lot of Republican governors to have become more centrist when they were in office. Talk a little bit about that um, versus when they were on the campaign trail. Yeah, 
Yeah, so, you know, we have we had quite a few governors that were elected in kind of Tea Party waves um, or affiliated with those kinds of uh, views on the campaign trail. Um, but then, uh, you know, once in office acted more like typical governors who were going to be concerned about uh, the, the people who were below <laughs> below them, um, the, the day-to-day administrative tasks. Um, they were going to be more concerned about possible court um, backlash, uh, possible interest group backlash. Uh, and, um, you know, to some degree were, um, you know, conservatives would say sort of moved, <laughs> moved leftward or more center uh, once, they, once they got in office. Um, Medicaid expansion, you know, is a good example where lots of uh, Republican governors uh, did resist, um, but, but others, um, you know, once the state hospital community and everyone else was, was on board with uh, receiving more federal money, um, you know, went, went forward uh, with it. Um, it's a long-term pattern. Um, there's some analysis of, of governors' um, state-of-the-state addresses that shows that um, they overwhelmingly request spending increases um, when they uh, make those uh, statements, um, and, and there's even actually a slight majority for requesting tax increases relative to tax cuts, which you which you might not expect. So, uh, governors, um, you know, tend to tend to veer toward uh, the overseeing state government and and thus start getting concerned with, um, with where, where the money is, is going to come from uh, once they get in office. Mm-hmm. When when you guys were interviewing the people, did you ask that same question about policy drift or ideological drift among Democratic uh, governors? Uh, we you saw we did we did ask about that uh, where it was you know where there were recent uh, Democratic governors. Um, we found not as much policy drift, um, but it, there was a consistent pattern. Uh, that I that I tried to highlight, which is that a lot of state policy fights are over the budget, and you know even if you don't think you're discussing the budget, often you are discussing something that's relative relevant to the budget, and so that means that you know when Democratic uh, governors uh, get get into power, they also have to, to face the same kinds of constraints. So Michigan just elected a new Democratic governor uh, who wanted to to quote fix the damn roads as her main policy issue. And of course, that just means where does the money come from? So she has to either get the Republican legislature to, to raise taxes or take the money from uh, other other programs. And so that that uh, example where she is facing the same uh, kinds of constraints that that Republicans face when they come in. Uh huh. And I guess uh, you know, per per your uh, previous book about the motivations of the two parties, the drift for Republicans is more pronounced, but also more relevant specifically to what the party has, has, or the conservative movement has been trying to engage in, which is explicitly, you know, to talk about reducing the size of government. Democrats have not tried to have an overarching agenda. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that, you know, incremental liberalism is kind of the normal policy process. We take on a few more things at a time. Um, and so when Democratic policymaking does try to look more like Republican policymaking, uh, they, they also don't succeed. So, um, you know, no state has passed statewide health care. No state has done something like the Green New Deal level initiative um, on the environment. Uh, but a lot of states have, have passed some increases in health care, and a lot of states 
states have passed some uh, efforts to, to promote renewable energy. So if, if they're kind of going with the state-level interest group community and trying to um, kind of incrementally expand what government does, um, that tends to be an easier project to uh, to achieve <laughs> uh, that the Democrats have in mind than the Republicans. But when you get um, you know when you get a more uh, broad ideological vision on the left, it is also hard to achieve. Uh huh. And uh, one uh, aspect of that transformation um, that you talked about very briefly in the manuscript is that. Um, the that there for a long time there were quite a few Democrats who were let's say economically progressive but socially moderate or conservative, um, but there don't seem to be as many of those as there were. Yeah, that's right. I think I even talk about my my home state of uh, is Missouri, um, where you know going all the way up to the northern border of Missouri, you had members of Congress that were um, liberal on economic policy and on um, and and even on racial policy. But um, when it came to sort of social issues, got a got an independent image um, as you know people who were. Uh, pro-life, pro-gun, pro-military, um, and you just don't see Democrats being able to hold those kinds of independent reputations any longer. And why do you? What has the research indicated uh, that has? Uh, what, what's happened to these Democrats? Why? Why? Why are they not around? Well, it's true in in both political parties um, that you know the Republicans uh, don't have as many. Um, Libertarian-ish, uh, northeastern, uh, cultural uh, moderates, uh, either. So it's part of a general pro uh, general progression towards uh, polarization and toward partisan matching across um, issue positions um, and and the nationalization of our of our political parties. Um, but I think it's been worse for Democrats um, because. Um, Republicans always kind of had a nationalized uh, reputation, um, but Democrats hung on in a lot of places um, with very localized reputations, um, and they don't have those anymore. Okay, and I guess perhaps that might have been in part just simply because the uh, politics changed a bit and the newer legislators were not, didn't, simply didn't have those positions. Yeah, I think part of it is you know who who Democrats increasingly uh, were, but part of it is also you know who who Democratic voters uh, wanted to wanted to select, um, and the overall just increasing overlap across issue positions in our politics. Okay, well, um, I, that's a, a personal subject of interest to me because there you know if you look at traditional or a lot of the research that wraps people's political opinions on X Y rather than just left right um there's a lot of people out there including republican voters who have you know moderate so or conservative social views but liberal economic views um and they don't no, seem no, to have a lot of representation yeah fewer politicians in those categories um but yes there are all, all kinds of uh, combinations of voters you also had some discussion in the book about how Republican states just don't pass as much legislation as Democratic states. Yeah, I think it's a long-running uh, partisan difference that, that Democrats are sort of interested in legislating on more issues more frequently uh, than, than Republicans, whereas Republicans try to achieve sort of broad-scale uh, changes. Um, it's consistent with what goes on in, in Congress at the, at the federal level um, as well. 
and there was a sense, at least among some scholars, that it might not be true at the state level because of the rise of the American Legislative Exchange Council and other cross-state uh, networks that sort of enabled Republicans to have a kind of codified uh, policy agenda that they could pass in, in lots of states. Um, and, and they did to some extent, um, but a lot of the easiest to pass ones uh, tended to be uh, those that were more symbolic, like among the top 10 bills uh, passed by ALEC. I think three or four of them are just sort of generic objections to some Obama administration policy, um, so kind of highly symbolic acts. Um, and, and some of the others were, were actually made possible by uh, Obama administration policies. So the biggest one was uh, updates to state education policy to enable more uh, charters, vouchers, and um, school accountability, teacher accountability uh, tied to test scores, um, which were nearly all passed in the wake of the Race to the Top initiative uh, that the Obama administration put out there. So uh, they they did they did pass um, uh, bills probably you know more maybe more frequently um, in in the later part of the the time period, um, but. You know, they still didn't get to the level of uh, sort of the, the normal incremental liberalism that you see in state government. So one example of that is that uh, I track the – there's a researcher that uh, tried to look at those states that are in – those, those uh, bills that are introduced by state agencies, and they account for, you know, sometimes 10 percent of the bills that are passed in the legislature are literally just like this agency asked for this additional power, and we are giving it to them. So it doesn't necessarily mean that um, you know that that's not necessarily a success of liberalism or cross-state liberal network. It's just kind of the normal business of policymaking is often for uh, state agencies to request additional power and additional funding and to get it. Now, in terms of those types of requests or outside non-legislator written legislation, an inevitable focus of your book is ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Why don't you talk a little bit about where ALEC has had its most success? Overall, has it really had much of an impact? Well, it, it has had an institutional impact. It sort of served as, a, as an alternative to um, state-level uh, um, bill writing, in, especially in places with term limits, with unprofessionalized legislatures that, that don't meet uh, all the time. Um, and for new members, um, it, it tends to have, um, you know, so you tend to see more ALEC bills introduced and passed in, in those circumstances um, where states kind of are more professionalized and built up, um, as all states are to some extent compared to, say, 20 or 30 years ago, but, but uh, by different degrees, um, you, you know, you see less uh, impact. Um, they also tended to, to have the same kinds of successes that Republicans did generally, uh, things that were kind of easy social issues or symbolic uh, changes they were able to make um, more easily, those that aligned with um, uh, federal policy incentives uh, were easier to pass than, than those that um, you know, went against them. Uh, those that had the support of local interest group communities did well than those that were against them. So uh, a fairly similar um, slate of, of successful and unsuccessful initiatives. Um, but the, the one thing I came away with is, is thinking about just the kind of advantages and disadvantages of those more cookie-cutter um, uh, bills. So 
you know, that if you can pass something across all states, like, you know, we're not going to allow local governments to increase minimum wage by, um, you know, by this amount, um, you know, that's maybe an easier bill to write and maybe one that, you know, can be uh, understood and implemented uh, quickly. Um, those that are about the state budget or restructuring a state agency or redoing education funding um, that tend to be the, the main matters of, of state government tend to be kind of hard uh, for those kind of cross-state legislative networks um, to, to make. Another interesting pattern is that it wasn't all um, – just conservatives working through these organizations. So in their beginning, Alec had um, you know, some success with Democratic legislators uh, as well. Um, and there was a, an important change in criminal justice policy nationwide um, that Alec was involved in kind of both sides of it. <laughs> they were a part of the increase in kind of tough on crime um, legislation um, up to the 90s. And then they were also a part of the, of the kind of turn against uh, tough on crime legislation towards criminal justice reform um, in reducing mass incarceration um, toward the later part of the of the period. Um, so sometimes they, um, you know, they, that was sort of a, an alliance between liberal foundations and, and conservative um, interest groups. Um, but in conservative states, it started first. And so uh, there are some places where Alec was influential, but it did not necessarily align with the, the more traditional conservative policy positions. So as the Republican Party has become more nationalized, has there been a corresponding increase in the symbolic bills as more fundamental change has proven more difficult? Uh, my sense is, is yes. Um, I, we don't have great overtime data on you know what what bills pass in, in legislatures, but um, it does seem like these uh, like these Alec bills were more likely to pass uh, more more recently, or more likely to be introduced more recently, um, and. Um, you know, there does seem to be a trend uh, toward, you know, nationalizing uh, the, the agenda and pursuing things in, in multiple states on the Republican side. Um, but I, I will say there are some blocks to that as well. When I read, read these policy history books of, of individual states, um, there's often these 15-year <laughs> discussions of the state budget or of education funding formulas and uh, those kinds of things that, that consume uh, state legislatures and just haven't seen that much impact from, from these kinds of uh, bills. To your knowledge, then, there isn't any is there is there any literature out there about just bills like sense of the legislature? Now, there's, in, there's definitely been an increase in the bills that um, both uh, try to respond to things that federal government is doing and try to respond to things that the local government is doing. So there's an increase in preemption um, bills and there's an increase in kind of bills that reference um, like some kind of federal initiative that they want to oppose or, or be for. So um, there is an increase at least in Okay. Well, now you, you mentioned a preemption um, that has been something that's been happening with increasing frequency in, in states where there are large uh, Democratic-leaning metropolitan areas or cities um, passing um, laws that uh, you know are, are more in line with national Democratic concerns. Um, and then Republican legislatures or governors um, trying to overrule them. Has there been any, um, uh, you know, that would seem to run afoul of the 
what is thought to be the conservative, conservative governing paradigm of the trying to devolve power to the uh, lowest level. Um, has there have you, has there been any discussion about that on the political right that you've seen? Like whether there's uh, a contradiction there. I think there's been quite a bit of uh, discussion, um, but you know, it turns out everyone's a hypocrite on this <laughs> on this issue. You see, uh, you know, Democrats um, uh, pursuing things against Republican governments and vice versa. Um, the in preemption of local governments, obviously, there are far more states with, with, that are run by Republicans, where there's uh, important localities that are run by Democrats. Uh, but there is some research that actually shows in the few places where, where there are Republican localities in Democratic states. Uh, they tend to do the same thing. So um, it, it uh, certainly seems like um, there's no kind of general commitment to uh, local control that, that rises above the policy objectives of the party. One of the other things that you and some other researchers have noted is that Republicans at the state level, and that's also true at the national, um, lack policy expertise compared to Democrats. And that because they don't fully know as much about how government works, it's harder for them to change it. Uh, I think that that is a problem. Um, it's you know we have more term limited uh, legislators. Um, Republicans tend to elect more business people. Um, Democrats uh, elect more lawyers and local um, government officials, um, and so that might might be reflected in um, you know their ability to kind of immediately make policy uh, when they when they come into office um, we haven't seen as much success at the state level in kind of reining back those um, professionalized legislatures um, there have been some attempts to say turn a state into to, to a part-time legislature or um, cut back on on some staffing um, but a, there's been a much more long-term trend toward uh, more professionalized legislators legislatures that that meet longer and have bigger central staffs um, that Republicans have not really reversed um, so maybe they didn't make the same <laughs> mistake that, that that's on something they made um, in 19, after 1994, um, but they, they still come into office um, without the expertise necessary. Um, now, I will say they're also often up against the, the local state interest groups. Um, it's, you know, very unlikely that any, legisl any legislator is going to come in with, you know, more information than the state policy lobbyists for the healthcare industry or the teachers union when it comes to uh, those kinds of uh, policies. The, the interest groups are there for, for longer um, and know more about both the policy and the, and the politics surrounding it. Republicans have had some successes in, uh, you mentioned abortion and guns, but they've also had some success in making changes to electioneering laws and election voting laws. Why do you think that they've had greater success in that area besides it doesn't involve the larger mechanisms of the government governance itself? Well, there, there's some uh, some of that that um, you know they're they're up against fewer um, fewer state interest groups. Um, they're um, you know that they, they but, but I think the big big thing that unites them is that they tend to um, match the ideological objectives of the party with their just political interests in the next uh, election so if you it's easier to build a, a coalition among legislators if you say very directly you know we believe this but it's also going to help you in the next election um, and so that 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 tends to be an area of success I also think it's it's just something that, that Democrats um, 
there's a sort of tendency for Democrats to be uh, less um, involved in kind of constitutional hardball kinds of um, approaches. They they tend to copy the Republicans after they do it, but they tend to be kind of less likely to go forward with it. Um, one example that we're seeing right now is that Democrats often propose you know good government kinds of things like independent redistricting commissions, um, and there's even some states like my own um, where they they may implement that kind of just in time for their potential to take over the state, the state government. Um, so it's kind of an ironic circumstance where, where Democrats kind of don't take advantage of all, um, you know, places where they can um, where, where they can kind of use the rules to their benefit, in part because they have this kind of good government uh, network as part of their, as a constituency of their party. Some more progressive commentators have asserted that there's a correlation between Republicans' willingness to play what you call constitutional hardball, and declining popularity for conservative viewpoints. Um, do you think there's any correlation there based on what the, you've seen in the research? Well, I, I don't think that that's why it trades off with um, these, these electoral um, changes, um, but it is certainly true as a broader matter um, that Republican policy positions are, are less popular than Democratic policy positions, even though uh, the Republican general ideological perspective is more popular uh, than the, the Democratic one. And so that means that, you know, Republicans can kind of sell a vision in campaigns, but not necessarily implement it um, when, when they get into power. Did you and your research team do any interviews with conservative or Republican activists and ask them about the general popularity of their ideas? Are they aware that the public isn't really interested in small government? Yeah, I don't think that there's... Um, those people that I have talked to, I don't think that there's a big, um, just, they certainly wouldn't dispute, they're actually more likely to accept than, than liberals the general point that the, that the size and scope of government tend to expand over time, that uh, kind of liberal, uh, incremental liberalism is sort of the, the basic um, pattern of, of government, and so they're kind of up against um, this, this system that they, that they usually lose. I think they'd be less likely to kind of admit that that's because the policies uh, are unpopular um, or less popular than the vision, um, but, but I actually don't get that much pushback when I, when I make that point to Republican activists. I mean, I think the, the broader defense, and, and we should, I guess, say this for the, <laughs> the purpose of the podcast, too, is that uh, the Republicans do succeed in, in, in slowing um, the, the growth to, to some extent. Um, and, you know, the, there's a long-running part of conservatism that just says that, you know, it's not necessarily there to make an alternative policy vision. It's just there to sort of slow down um, the, the kind of the, the – shift to, um, you know, immediately make more laws and programs um, as soon as ideas uh, develop. Yeah, and as you observe, this is a trend that exists not just at the state level, but it's also true at the national level in this country and within other countries as well. Governments are going to expand just like businesses are going to expand or families are going to expand. Yeah, and even as a percentage of the economy, it tends to rise uh, over time uh, across um, localities, uh, states, um, and, and nations, and internationally. Um, there are some blocks that they, they're way above our sort of level of, of government intervention. So there is some sign that, you know, when European countries got to 50% of GDP going to government, um, that, you know, that, that may be, they may face some limits there. Um, but, um, you know, we're not, we're not by those. On the topic, though, of, of constitutional hardball, you write in the book that it has become increasingly popular, but hasn't gerrymandering always been a thing? 
Uh, it has. Uh, the, it, it has become um, easier to do <laughs> because of uh, the rise of, of related uh, software and data. Um, but um, but yes, it, it's always been a part of the process. Um, some other things are new um, or newer. Um, you know, efforts to take away um, powers from incoming governors um, right before they they take office. Um, you know, we're, we're there was some, but but not not that level of, of precedent for those kinds of actions. Um, but I think it's also useful to say what they didn't do. Um, you know, there were efforts, for example, to redistribute electoral college votes um, in some states um, to benefit Republicans. Those did not succeed. Um, you know, the the voting uh, rights restrictions and purges of, of voter rolls for people who haven't voted in the last one or two elections, um, you know, have moved forward some places, but the overall pattern is that more people are registering to vote easier, uh, more people can vote in more locations and at more times um, than they used to. So uh, even when they kind of are pursuing this, um, they, they may still be losing the, the long time, the long-term war over uh, accessibility of voting and registration. Just going back for a second to budget balance requirements and how they can be an impediment to large-scale state change. Um, there's quite a contrast with that and the national level, where there is no requirement that the federal budget be balanced. Right. So um, it's a big difference uh, with the national level that Republicans can, can cut taxes without cutting spending, um, as they have done in the last two uh, Republican uh, presidencies. Um, they also have this kind of category of spending defense that they want to increase at the national level that doesn't really exist at the state level. Um, so, you know, there it's a more direct trade-off in state politics between taxes and health and education spending, uh, and voters are able to see that direct trade-off um, as soon as tax cuts uh, are passed. Although there have been some exceptions to the rule there. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about states where Republicans have managed to make large-scale budget change? Yes, um, they, uh, they, you know, Kansas is the, the sort of poster child for um, Sam Brownback coming in and, and making uh, major cuts uh, to, to state tax revenue um, by the, the time that uh, I was writing, um, several of those um, tax cuts had had um, been reversed uh, pretty directly um, by Republican uh, legislators, um, and it was a big part of uh, causing a big feud within the Republican Party in Kansas that's still ongoing um, and allowed uh, Democrats to, to win the, the governorship uh, there uh, in response to the kind of bad after aftertaste of uh, Sam Brownback's uh, policies. So uh, there's some dispute about that conventional story, but I'm, I'm convinced by the more conventional story that um, you know this was this was uh, an opportunity to actually come in and, and try to do the the promises of a of a smaller government, and, and it just it just didn't work um, in terms of keeping people on board uh, for the long term, and it caused a, a fairly major public backlash. Okay, and what about Louisiana? <laughs> in the um, in the southern states, what you mainly see is that the the governments were already pretty small under uh, Democratic governors and under Republican governors. Um, the um, the, the changes 
in tax revenue um, there have a whole lot more to do with economic uh, change, um, and you just don't see big big differences in uh, tax revenues under Democratic versus Republican governors. Um, okay, so, but, I mean, Bobby Jindal was kind of put what, forward in that same yeah, what you do see is um, a sort of a shift uh, towards more reliance on, on sales taxes, um, and, and that the general program is part of that as well. Um, so, um, you know, there is some kind of redistribution of where the, the, the taxes come from um, that, that has moved forward in, in some Republican states. And that, that has been more stable uh, than attempts to just cut the, the size of total state revenue. So, I mean, overwhelmingly... Uh, it's been the case that you know big promises of large scale cutbacks and they never really materialize or or when they do are 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 um, reverse. What are the long term implications for the conservative movement? The the continual failure to achieve those those big promises. So first, I don't think it's just failure to cut back. It's also that in the states like where the economy was going well, uh, for example, you continue to see increases in, in the size of the state budget, um, even beyond um, economic growth, even under Republicans. So um, it's, it's not just you know kind of a failure to, to cut back, but it's actually that Republicans, when when put in power at a time of increasing revenue, tend to <laughs> tend to go go with it. Um, so that, that suggests um, that. Uh, either um, re Republicans are, are not actually sincere in their um, and desires to, to cut the, the size and scope of government, um, or uh, that uh, they recognize uh, when when put in power that um, doing so uh, would be would be quite um, unpopular uh, and and move away uh, from it. Um, I would put in just a, a third possibility, which is just that the states may really just be at the mercy of the, of the federal government. And um, one of the features of our political system with the midterm backlash is that um, the party that gains power in the states tends to be losing power at the federal level, um, and that is not a recipe for uh, success in moving policy overall in your your direction so um for for example um you know obviously the affordable care act was such a large federal initiative um but but although you saw a considerable pushback in republican states has still resulted in you know 36 states doubling the size of their largest program um and those are going to be fairly permanent changes um, in my view um so it, it also i think I think that that deserves some some piece of the explanation is just that um, you know the, the the politics tend to move the states uh, away from the federal government, um, but the policy incentives tend to move the states with the federal government. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess my question was more: Do you think that there is going to be a an impact on the fact that both at the national level and the state level, conservative activists? And politicians will get elected with the promises of cutting, but then never actually do that. In many cases, actually increase the budget. Yeah, I think I think you are seeing an impact. I think I would partially credit um, that with um, the the change in in the base of the Republican Party towards a more uh, social uh, and populist uh, oriented uh, constituency. Um, there, you know, there is a, a sense that. Um, you know that that if that's if, if those policies are very unpopular when put into practice, then then maybe they need um, 
new kinds of issues to, to run on and, and mobilize uh, their their base. Um, it's also meant that um, you know that that the uh, the, the more uh, economic focused parts of the the Republican Party maybe have been you know less less enthused um, with the with the current direction uh, of the party uh, than than some other uh, parts of the party. Um, but I also think it helps to explain why Republican constituents are um, repeatedly mad not just at their opponents, um, but at their their party leaders um, for selling out or for compromising too much um, in a way that you just don't see as much on the Democratic side. Uh I guess to bring it to a little bit more personal level, um, you're affiliated with the Niskanen Center, which is a group that started off as a libertarian-focused think tank, but in addition to your other responsibilities. But, and you yourself, I guess, started off a little bit more conservative-oriented, and I guess you've changed somewhat as your career has progressed. Yeah, I tend to do the, the sort of backlash uh, too a little bit where I uh, I went to college at a fairly conservative college called Claremont McKenna in Southern California, and over that period I became more liberal. Then I went to Berkeley uh, for grad school and reacted against that and moved, moved a little bit back. Uh, but my, my overall kind of uh, perspective is still that, that I, I sort of start from from some conservative or libertarian predispositions, um, but like the American public, um, once I start looking into policy <laughs> controversies, I tend to uh, evolve more towards your your liberal policy wonks um, in my in my perspective. Um, so I, I guess not to be too depersonalized, but I think I would take that as as part of a, a larger lesson that um, that liberals should be aware that there are some advantages to to conservative predispositions positions that, you know, the, the the instinct to think more broadly about the role of government in society, about how, what um, government uh, activities we should prioritize among all those things that we might want to do, um, that policies that have um, good effects immediately might still say, uh, you know, change the, the role of government uh, in, in society if we add it up across all policy areas, um, and that this instinct to kind of completely to, to um, unidirectionally increase the size of government over time, um, you know, may have some disadvantages in terms of ever reviewing the kinds of things that we have decided to do in the past. So I think it's worth, um, even if liberals don't agree with conservative policies, um, taking into consideration that, you know, often they, <laughs> they those predispositions at least make more sense uh, to, to liberals as, as concerns. On the other hand, I think conservatives should, should recognize that um, although the, the public um, kind of Shares uh, some of these uh, some of these predispositions. Um, actually, kind of cutting back public services um, is, is a very unpopular thing. Uh, and even if people say that they want smaller government, um, once you have to actually pick things out of the budget or uh, stop regulating certain things, um, the the public and even the policymakers uh, that are charged with doing that uh, tend to have uh, a lot more uh, trouble with with uh, putting those ideas in practice. Uh huh. Well, now what about libertarianism within the United States? You know, out, outside of the U.S., especially in Europe, um, what had been most associated with libertarianism is called liberalism, and those parties typically are regarded as 
sort of centrist, whereas in the United States, libertarianism has been more of a right-wing aligned um, movement, if you can even call it that. Is, is that is that changing in this country? Uh, I think, you know, to, to, I mean, in one on the one hand, you know, the Libertarian Party did did well by historical comparisons in the last uh, election and kind of benefited from, um, you know, some Republican-leaning voters who are uncomfortable with Trump. So um, it, that's its kind of current <laughs> status is as a, as a place for um, – you know, it's a place for, for Republicans that, that don't like some of the um, trends in the in the Republican Party, um, uh, but you know, I don't know what its kind of long term uh, prospects are. Um, I do think that uh, libertarian predispositions are more popular in the U.S. Um, than than in, certainly in Europe and really in most places in the world. So um, Americans don't really differ that much with other publics on our views on specific policy issues, uh, but we are incredibly distinct when it comes to things like, is it the responsibility of government to redistribute wealth? Um, you know, should, uh, is it better for government to, to solve more more problems? Um, in these sort of generic views of government, um, Americans do uh, profess um, libertarian principles much more uh, than, than people in other countries. What are the actual outcomes from all the policy struggles that the two parties have had in the states? Has it really even made a difference at all? Well, the big surprise here um, is that you know, the, the, to the extent that, that policies do change, um, they don't seem to have huge effects um, on the, on the ground. So. Uh, we talked about abortion and gun laws change in every state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that abortion rates and gun ownership rates or crime rates have, have changed along with them. Um, and the, when it comes to kind of these big things that, that you usually think we're fight, fighting about, like you know, whether we should have more economic growth or more concern with uh, inequality and distribution, um, you just don't see big effects of Republican or Democratic control um, of, of the states. Um, so I had expected that there to be at least some where we could say, okay, here's here's the trade-off. You know, in, in Republican states, you get a little bit more economic growth, but it goes to the people at the top. Um, but uh, you know, that that did not uh, materialize. Um, the the parties just weren't able to change the states enough um, to to change those those kinds of, of indicators. Um, and I think one reason is that you see these kind of nationwide uh, trends in in public policy um, that aren't that related <laughs> that aren't that related to party um, and the, the ones that are related to, to party I think it turns out to be easier to pass those kinds of things that are actually going to have less impact on the ground all right well so in the book you say that there isn't really a red state or blue state model um, but might that change as the parties continue to become more divergent or are national and sort of institutional state forces going to keep them close, in your opinion? Uh, it could be. Um, you know, you do still sometimes, you know, hear people talk about the models. Um, I'm in the Midwest, so the, the Democrats will talk about Minnesota as being a positive Democratic example. Um, the Republicans will talk about Indiana as being a successful uh, Republican example. Um, when you dig into the state's policies, they're not quite as different as advertised. Um, and when you dig into the 
what's responsible for their economic gains. Um, it, you know, you tend to see factors that aren't all that related um, to, to politics. So we, we, we may see, um, certainly there's an overall trend that Democratic and Republican states are now looking more to one another for which policies they pass uh, versus kind of um, just all passing the same uh, kinds of policies. Um, but uh, there's still these nationwide uh, trends. Um, some of that is good. So, you know, early childhood education has become very popular across the states, partly in response um, to uh, research showing its effectiveness. Um, and so, you know, in, in some sense, it's, it's a sign that <laughs> it's a sign that uh, that states can respond uh, to kind of real real trends among policy wonks um, in in what works. Um, Similarly, you would say on criminal justice reform um, that, you know, they all moved together one way, but then they all moved uh, the other way, partially in response to, to kind of new trends in, in research and policy tools um, over the long, more longer term. Um, uh, pretty much all states used to have uh, mental health um, in centralized hospitals as a huge portion of their budget um, and have all moved away from that um, over time uh, towards more uh, local uh, and in some cases, private care. Um, so you know, they they do they do all sometimes uh, move together, um, and and that that isn't all a bad sign. Um, but I, I think it it sort of remains to be seen not not whether there'll be a a package of policies that's more likely to pass in a Democratic versus a Republican state, but whether that package is enough to really move the needle on things like economic growth and inequality. Mm-hmm. Now, one state that you focus on in different parts of the book is Wisconsin, um, and you make the point that I think a lot of um, progressives may not want to accept, and that is that uh, the policies of Wisconsin appear to have been more economically liberal than the population of Wisconsin. And then you you discuss that in the context of Scott Walker. Uh, why don't you this uh, rehash that a little bit here. If you yeah, so I think um, liberals would accept the sort of other part of that, <laughs> which is that in the, in the South, um, you know, policies were already pretty conservative, and so it, it wasn't very meaningful to, to move from a conservative Democratic leadership to a conservative Republican leadership. But you're right that uh, they are less willing to accept that, you know, Scott Walker was more way more successful than, than most um, of the Republican revolution in the states in passing policies, um, but uh, a lot of his success was in moving Wisconsin to closer toward um, the, the median state in its economic policy liberalism. Um, rather than, you know, moving it uh, overwhelmingly to the right across states. Um, and, and also, as you say, um, that was in part made possible by the fact that um, Wisconsin was already, uh, you know, was a, a moderate state uh, in its public opinion, um, even though it had long had this kind of liberal trajectory in economic policy that was supported by its Republican and Democratic uh, political elites. Um, so I think that what that means is that um, you know Republicans can have a chance, can have more of a chance of, of success in policymaking uh, if they are able to, to come to power in a state where there really is a mismatch uh, between the state's current policies uh, and the views of its constituents. Okay, and where do you see North Carolina fitting into that analysis? 
with all the controversies they have had between the two parties in that state. I don't have the data in front of me on, on North Carolina's um, public and um, policies, um, but it, it it is a place um, where uh, the you know there were conservative Democrats to some extent, but not um, in the same way as other parts uh, of the of the South. Um, and so, for example, it had built a, a big university um, a system that was uh, well uh, funded, um, and so it had a little bit more. Um, you know, I guess uh, liberal policy potential prior to the, the Republican um, revolution, um, but it's just also a state that's just seen a whole lot of demographic and, and political change um, that has kind of highlighted um, this issue that's present in lots of states, but is just very stark in North Carolina, where statewide um, Democrats can do pretty well, um, but in, in districts, um, they're much less able to do well, in part due to gerrymandering, but in part due to their extreme concentration in uh, cities and close in metropolitan areas. Yeah. Well, and the concentration of Democrats in urban areas, it's much, I think that, you know, when you, when you hear uh, progressive activists complain about Republican gerrymandering, um, they just don't seem to be aware that there have been a number of nonpartisan commissions um, that draw districts in the states, and uh, the, the results are maybe not quite as extreme as Wisconsin, but they are not that divergent. Yeah, I think that what they that what they sometimes hear is it's not gerrymandering, it's uh, you know it's, it's demographics, and so they they want to push back against that, and that's understandable. Um, but I think you know it is unquestionable that another part of the story is um, Democrats' um, geographic concentration in cities and our tendency to, to be represented politically on a geographic district basis. Do you think that uh, the trends that we're seeing now today with more willingness to play uh, legislative hardball with less interest in compromise. Will the literature on this topic be different, let's say, 25 years from now? Well, I think you are seeing um, a lot of change um, in the in the research uh, community already. You're seeing a lot more emphasis on polarization, a lot on these kind of cross-state trends in policymaking, a lot on the importance of organizing, not just um, electoral results. And I think all of that um, is is useful. Um, the, the one place I worry about in terms of whether the research will reflect reality is that I and all of my other colleagues um, tend to focus on those things that are kind of easy to count um, across states and easy to compare across states. And sometimes those are the most important, but sometimes they're not. So in the case of like who, which states expanded uh, Medicaid, I think you know it makes a lot of sense to, to focus on that issue. Um, but sometimes we um, kind of just count up policies passed in, in this state or that, um, and they tend to be to generate less focus on these kind of more state-specific challenges from our budget-oriented policies that consume um, the time of a lot of different state legislators. So I am, I believe we are going to kind of go in this direction of considering partisan and ideological effects across the states of thinking about polarization, um, but I worry um, that sometimes the, the things that, that matter the most in terms of the trajectory of state government uh, might might get less attention um, as we nationalize, as we started, as we nationalize our, our conversation and look for the same things happening across states. 
All right, that'll do it. I'm Matthew Sheffield. This is Theory of Change. We've been speaking with Matt Grossman. He's a professor at Michigan State University and the author of Red State Blues, How the Conservative Revolution Stalled in the States. It's out now.